This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves a world record and even one on the ASX. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me as always is Nirvan Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm exceptionally well, and I'm back. You're back. We're, we're both back. We're back. <laughs> and we're ready and raring. Mate, let's start with that record before we get a little tangent. Straight, straight tangent. Straight that's tangent. Do. That's what we do. Um, the ASX is at a record. Now, that's impressive. I have to tell you, I actually have gone one better. I'm a world record holder now. Did you know that? Oh, no, I did not know that. What type of record do you hold? Well, it's not the world's fastest man. It's not the world's fastest swimmer. Okay. I was, well, with my beautiful wife and, and son, we were three of 2,300 people who in Birdsville set a record for the most people doing the Nupwish City Limits dance at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, that is now my claim to fame. I'm officially a world record holder. It's not how I expected it to happen, but frankly, at my age and condition, it was never going to be anything else. So we had to dance the Nupwish for five minutes straight. Uh, and the, uh, the whole crowd was there. They had people going up and down the aisles making sure we'd all done the right thing and we're all doing the right dance steps. Luckily, my 18-year-old self remembered what it was like to do the nutbush at, at nightclubs and parties. So, yeah, a few, well, I haven't got the CV yet, but officially, a new world record. Is it going to be on the Guinness Book? You never know. That'd be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. That'd be very cool. Shall we get on something more interesting? Oh, that's pretty interesting already. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Mate, this week we're going to talk about a few things, including that ASX record we'll get to. The United Kingdom has a new Prime Minister, yet another one, and that's kind of in the revolving door of Prime Ministers worldwide. We should probably, I don't know if we're running out of space to list them all, but we'll try. A couple of different kind of bits and pieces in the streaming world. Interesting to see the old and nude former partnership, Foxtel and Netflix, getting together, or are they? And Facebook's massive, massive fine. I'm going to ask you to try and tell me how that fine was calculated. And of course, we will do our favourite thing and get stuck into the Foolish Mailbag. Let's do it. All right. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, the ASX has hit an all-time record. Just Wednesday afternoon, we're recording this on Thursday morning, Wednesday afternoon, the market closed at its, not its highest level since 2007, but at a level higher than 2007. The ASX has never, ever closed at such a high level. Time for the streamers and celebrations? Or, like me, are you a little bit concerned every time we hit a record that maybe the good times can't last much longer? Well, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. You know, like, I mean, ultimately the market goes up, right? So over True. time, for True. the market to go up, there needs to be new records <laughs> being set. Um, yeah, that guess. being said, I mean, the interesting thing about the market's recent happiness is... <laughs> Is, is basically the rate cuts, right? right I right. mean, so the rate cuts uh, effectively mean that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're talking like traditional finance and you're being mm. like in a finance geek and you're looking at discounted <laughs> cash flows, then, um, you, you know, the, the, the amount you discount with is essentially the risk-free rate, which is whatever the rate that uh, the RBA is, for example, setting, which is going to be yes. pretty close to um, non-existent uh, interest, <laughs> which means that your risk-free money in, on, on term deposits is also pretty much non-existent return. Right, right. Uh, you know, set a little bit of a premium on top of that for the market, and therefore your discount rates are now lower. As you lower your discount rates, so therefore your future cash flows are now of higher value. If they're of higher value, well, you would expect the stocks should be more 
expensive. Right, right. So <laughs> right. let's let's unpack that just a little bit. So lots of finance jargon there. You don't you're not a, you're not a particularly big finance jargon kind of guy. You're not no. necessarily a uh, the sort of guy who, who's pouring over spreadsheets and, and spreadsheets and spreadsheets. But you're right. The way the finance world thinks about these things is. The, it, it basically says, "Look, I want to I want to get a return that's better than I can get without taking risk." Yeah, and that's what we call the risk-free rate. Generally, that's U.S. Treasuries, or here in Australia, Australian government bonds, or the, even the official cash rate as a proxy for that. The lower that goes, if you say, "Look, I want to get the risk-free rate plus say five percent, just to pick a number," um, then when rates are four percent, you want to get a nine percent return. But if you've got to get a a five percent gain on a one percent risk-free rate then you can now afford to get a 6% return rather than 9%. And if that's true, you can pay more, as you've already mentioned, for that asset because 6% of, of a, you know, a, a larger number is the same as 9% of a smaller number. In other words, you can pay more and still get the return you want. Maybe that's driving share prices up. Now, let me be devil's advocate for a second. It's also happening in the US where they've got higher rates. Is, is it really just rates or is it just... To your point, even earlier, inevitable that some twelve years after our last high, we we're kind of due to get here anyway, right? Like, is it rates or is it just the inevitable upward march of markets? So, so it's it's a little bit of both. I'll, I'll add a little bit of caution here. So, one of the things that I say is that the the the, the rate cuts are, I mean, the things that we are celebrating in some sense, but at the same time, it is also something that we should worry about, right? Why <laughs> exactly. is the rate being cut? So, so RBA cuts rates twice in a row, and I don't yeah. want to get into, um, you know, because we have talked about this a few times, but if you cut rates twice in a row, it basically suggests that, oh, my economy is probably not doing that well. Right, I right. need inflation at a certain number. I'm not getting it. Uh, there's not enough wage growth. And, and you know, I can make, you know, I can go on, you know, in blah, blah, blah fashion and basically say, well, you know, things are not working out the way it should be. And therefore, I'm trying to stimulate the economy. Right. Right. Now, so that's the story in Australia. Mm-hmm. That's the story roughly in Europe. Uh, they are trying to get growth. and mm-hmm. It's not happening. Yep. Uh, Japan has been trying to get growth oh, for man. the last, what? <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> but uh, let me be generous and say 15 or 20. And there's been no growth really happening, right? Right, right. The US rate cuts, or the US haven't actually hasn't yet cut rates, but it's like, you know, actually the rates mm. right now in the US are higher than they're here. Yep. Uh, and the speculation is that they are going to cut rates. But the story there is slightly different. Their economy is actually growing. And they are saying, we need to cut rates because the rest of the world kind of sucks. <laughs> so, so, so the problem really is that if the rest of the world kind of sucks, eventually they're going to kind of suck because, and yeah. I, you know, uh, pardon my usage of the language, um, but, but uh, effectively it means you know, if, you, if you produce products that are going to be sold elsewhere, but there's no growth mm-hmm. there, well, people are not going to be buying those things. Right, or right. eventually they're not going to be able to find that growth. So they are cutting rates in anticipation of the fact that there's no growth anywhere else. Mm. So, I mean, you know, if you take that view, then you feel that, well, I don't know. I'm not, you know, should I feel happy about this? Mm. Um, probably not. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, I would also say that it doesn't mean that the, um, you know, there's nothing in the market that's worth, that's interesting. There are a lot of interesting companies, a lot of innovative companies, a uh, lot of companies that are actually taking cost out uh, for businesses and therefore making businesses competitive. Right. Those sort of companies will continue to do well, um, you know, rates or no rates or whatever we are talking about in the rates going up or down. Mm-hmm. So if you take a company specific view, um, I wouldn't worry too much. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Speaking of which, hard not to, to think about that kind of rate cut decision. Uh, Westpac was out this week saying they expect another two rate cuts here in Australia from 1% to 0.5%. I want to say by early next year, I think it was, which is, you know, on one hand, it's an interesting challenge. Governor Lowe has said separately, look, 
you know, there's only so much more monetary policy can do. It's so low, rates so low now that each, each judicial cut is kind of not really particularly effective, is effectively what he's saying. Yet Westpac's saying, well, they're going to have to do it anyway because the economy is potentially in, in such a, a tough spot. And we do hear, and maybe by the time this, this podcast actually released, it's been already announced, but apparently Governor Lowe is going to be talking about the challenge or otherwise of actually using inflation targeting as a central bank tool. So it's not impossible that in a couple of weeks' time, we may have a very different framework for what interest rates are actually designed to do if he kind of says, look, this whole inflation targeting thing, either let's not do it, or maybe our old target was simply too high because we're in a low inflation world now and this is the way these things are. You know, There's no point aiming for 2 to 3%, which is just not going to happen. Um, so there's, there is something of... I don't. I don't want to draw too fine a point in it, but there is something potentially of a, of a significant kind of multi-decade paradigm shift either happening or about to happen. The inflation that the, the central banks around the world have been desperately trying to to fix or to to create, maybe it's not going to happen, or maybe they're simply going to have to realise that in this new world, one percent inflation might be the new status quo. I think that's that's a really great point, and and I think there's some proof to that. I mean, if you look at the uh, the US numbers, for example, you know they're not getting the inflation. Right there, right, but they right. are actually getting the economy to grow, and their joblessness numbers are really, really low. Which yeah. basically means that the un- or, or unemployment numbers are really low. Yeah. I mean, if your unemployment numbers are like like three point five percent or something like that, mm. basically everybody is employed. <laughs> um, and maybe you know you just have to accept that you know wage inflation is not likely to happen right, because right. maybe you know it's not a hunt for uh, workers in that mm. sense, right? Mm. Maybe it's you know technology is doing some of the heavy lifting, which yep. is taking away some of the things that you get from inflation so but if we are in this new age of low interest rates then you know five years ago the stocks were really cheap (laughs) and and that's and that's part of the 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 real challenge i think for for policymakers but even for investors you know the question of as you point out if you think about the world 20 20 years ago maybe 30 but you know 20 years ago most things were still material goods you know i i'm (laughs) I'm old enough to remember back at back in high school when it was primary, secondary, and tertiary industries, um, and, and it was all about you know that the primary was the mining and, and farming, and the secondary was the manufacturing. You turned into something, and tertiary was services. If I remember my high school economics correctly, and get out of Mr. Barnett if you're listening, um, you know to some degree the world has changed. Not only is it a, a case of technology taking over just just structurally, but also. Technology companies, you and I have talked lots of times, and you've mentioned, I think, on this podcast, if you haven't, I'm sure we will at some point in the future, that the book you've read, Capitalism Without Capital, that very idea that the, the pure economics now of, of IT doesn't require physical goods. It doesn't even necessarily require the same amount of physical labor because the scaling, scaling of virtual good is almost infinitely possible with almost zero incremental cost. Um, at some level, at least, and so you know the, the extra, the extra, you know, Netflix subscriptions, the extra. We'll talk about that in a minute. The extra Facebook users, the extra, you know, pick your pick your topic. Really, um, everything from you know streaming through to, well, I guess, online finance through to you know whatever you can think of. It you know our lives are so much more virtual now. Um, podcasts, for example. Oh, this is free. Maybe maybe, maybe we're the cause of it. Maybe we're keeping inflation down by giving away free content. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, there, there is some sense that that's kind of the new, you know, the, the structure of the very economy itself, and why you can't get wages and and um, and and prices up might just be frankly that we're all buying more virtual goods and there just simply is no inflation elasticity inherent in those because of the ability to scale them at almost zero cost fantastic i agree should we move on let's move on let's move on motley fool money financial advice for real people not trust fund hippies sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m mates uh <laughs> over in the uk um 
I don't know. I, I, I want to be. We're not political on this podcast, as as you made the point many many times. Yet I can't help but smile when I think about Boris Johnson being the new UK Prime Minister uh, this week. He was announced. He was voted by two thirds of the of the uh, members of the Conservative Party over over his rival. Um, you've now got Boris on one side of the of the ocean and and uh, Donald Trump on the other side of the ocean. I saw a funny meme this morning that had. Um, uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump saluting and uh, juxtaposed against that was the, the late great ben, Benny Hill um, and it was a pretty funny image if you get a chance to have a look at it feel free to check it out if you like straight shooting uh, no nonsense politicians and you kind of believe they've got some sense of what's going on then maybe Boris and Donald are, are your preferred options if you kind of feel a little bit more comfortable with some steady hands in the tiller Boris and Donald aren't exactly the sorts of guys you, you want running two of the most important economies and frankly even geopolitical players more importantly right it's not just the economies themselves the uk is a relatively small economy um at least compared to europe and, and the us and china but it's at some level it's hard not to see i don't, I don't know what to call it but there is a, there is a definite shift like like with inflation targeting a definite shift when it comes to politics right now um we're not a political podcast we're not a we, we try not to be party political particularly but i do have to ask you mate boris johnson is pm of the uk Problem solution? Uh, how do you how do you factor Boris into your into your investing? That's a good question. So um, I have not factored him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put it this way. Um, yeah, yeah, well, uh, I'll make another comment bef- before I say anything else. Well, the the thing that gives me a smile here is the fact that. Um, you know, we have competition now in the revolving door of prime ministers. Right? <laughs> That's right. So, so that is awesome. <laughs> please you, give us, is, please give us more competition. There's all that 16 p.m.s behind us. To be fair, <laughs> well, but, you it, know, it might be competition, mate. But it's it's Australia first, daylight second, well, and third. Like, like you know, we're we still winning, but you know, we've got a healthy competition. So that's great. Uh, so that's Scrum number one. probably up for a re- replacement about now, isn't he? Has it been about the average length of yeah, tenure? Yeah, probably. PM? Like I mean, you know. Soon, <laughs> Scomo's oh, time dear. is up. We yes. have called it here first. <laughs> Maybe so, not, so do I care about Boris because he won't be there long, or do you think there's something else going on? Um, I don't know. So this break exit thing is a, is a mess, yeah. right? And I mean, uh, the problem here is I think changing the the British Prime Minister does not change anything because um, the, ultimately what they're trying to do is negotiate a deal with with the European Union, right? And or the European Economic Union, yeah, I should yeah, rather yeah. say. Uh, and in, and in that case, I mean. Uh, the Euro- European Economic Union, those people who are going to be l- remaining there, I mean, they're going to mm. make it hard, right, for them to leave. Because if you make it easy for them to leave, well, you know, a lot of other, that sets a precedence for other people to leave. So I don't know whether, cha- you know, how changing the PM actually gets anything, mm. um, you know, changes the dynamics in any way, right? I mean, you may have somebody who is, you know, left mm. le- left leaning, right leaning, but how does it make it any different? Uh, that's not really clear to me. Let me try and answer that question, or at least at least pose a, a different a different question to you, because I think that's true. Although, well, Theresa May always said, "Look, the people have spoken. We're going to do, do Brexit because that's what we're supposed to do." That was almost one of those reluctantly being dragged in that direction, right? It was I'm the leader. You've all voted for it. I guess we've got to do it. I'll see what I can do. Boris Johnson was the you know he was he was very squarely in in camp vote leave. He was all about getting out of the out of the European Union, so the Economic Union. Um, and he said overnight that, you know, the UK will be out, come by hook or by crook, on October 31 regardless. It, it to my mind, gives some, on one hand, certainty, uh, unless something dramatic happens in the meantime. You know, his, his entire political kind of future is, is now staked on getting out of the EU. That being said, it, I think to my mind, it actually raises materially the stakes here because 
if if a better if a better exit deal Brexit deal was going to be done by waiting a couple of months or with careful nuanced negotiation between Brussels and, and Britain, then that's kind of the Theresa May version. Boris Johnson's kind of a crash or crash through kind of guy, right? And so maybe his his grandstanding, maybe his kind of brinksmanship, again, a little alluding to Donald Trump's style, maybe that gets a great result for, for Britain because the, the EU thinks, well, we got to do something here. But maybe Boris kind of just dives off the diving board and realizes the pool's empty like that you know there's a, there's some real concern that come come november one um there's a bit of a mess to clean up and, and johnson may not be the most nuanced guy to see that through yeah i think i think i agree with you so i mean there's uh, i guess the way to think about this is there's more short-term risk now with right, uh, right. with boris being in charge um you know it ultimately all boils down to what you think about the economic union right i mean yeah. the problem with the economic union is um they've got essentially one central bank mm. but different governments um, all making their own borrowings and so on so they you know they, they yeah. basically losing control of your currency is a big deal yep. right it's you know what would happen if we had the US dollar as our currency right right right, right. Uh, that we'd have one less weapon yeah that's uh, right in yeah, our toolkit yeah. right so and a hugely um, valuable one right, too right so like I mean you know uh, Governor Lowy would not be able to cut rates because mm-hmm. he would not control the rates right anymore. right so, yeah, so the US doesn't want to cut so Australia would be, would be caught, caught on that exactly caught in that. right so uh, I mean if you believe that the economic union concept is flawed or to some extent flawed. We should say this is the currency union though, right? Rather than the economic union. So So, you have the economic union that doesn't require monetary... uh, I don't know what the word is, but monetary union effectively. Yeah. The, the the UK at least has its own currency, but it's still bound by the regulations and, yes. and the rules kind of imposed, at least the, the broke leave camp would say imposed by Brussels, yeah. giving it less flexibility around that sort of right. stuff. Yeah. So they, they're still, I mean, yeah. So, so I mean, if, if yeah. So they, they control their rates, of course, but, mm. they, you know, being an open open economic union therefore means there's a flow of people. And Correct. So yeah. I mean, in many ways, I guess you could say that they had actually the best of both worlds in, to some extent. I've got to say, that's um, I, I mean, I'm, I, 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 you know, I would have voted Remain had I been there. I don't, I don't claim to know a whole lot of detail about it, but it does strike me that the kind of psychological benefits they're looking for are probably, uh, at best, ephemeral. Uh, compared to the real concrete benefits of staying in, which include, as you say, that having the best of both worlds, right? Getting access to the economy without having to give up control of your of your currency. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, I it to me it, it seems like there's short term risk. I mean, eventually, I think you know that's an important economy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Europe, you know Europe is going to be neighbor of the UK. Um, Something's you know they're going to work out something. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I just hope it doesn't cause. I mean, it's it's these sort of external shocks that can potentially turn a weak weak and kind of muddling along economy in, in the UK and or Europe or, or both together into worse, right? Like once these things stall, they're really hard to get going. My, my concern isn't that – I don't think the, the exit or not is probably not a massive economic issue over the long term in itself. Yeah. Except for the potential that it runs by, of, of creating – you know, a, a set of a, basically, you know, dominoes falling. Yeah. That maybe it, it would would have wished to to have avoided given the chance, right? Yeah. So the UK economy, relatively speaking, is actually in a good position. I mean, the unemployment numbers are actually pretty low right, right now. Right. Yeah. So I mean, if they had to do it, maybe this is the best time to do it. Uh, on yeah. the other hand, you know, you don't know how how that unemployment number, for example, is going to change because right. of this. Um, they have a huge financial services industry in mm-hmm. the in in London. How is that going to be impacted mm-hmm. because of these changes? We don't know. Um, I mean, if you are investing, for example, in in, in financial services company that pri- primarily do business in the UK, and a lot of their business is with the UK and the, Euro- right, and the Europe, right. European Union, right. um, 
uh, then you know you've got risks there yeah. that you got to think about yeah. or you own banking stocks for example that have a lot of exposure to the european union mm-hmm. um i don't know from here in australia i think uh, you know there are some companies on the asx for example which do uh, business in the uk mm. and in europe and in the financial sector so you know got to watch them yeah. uh, but their exposure is not going to be nearly as big as the exposure for you know say the london listed you know the lse listed uh, companies mm. or mm. maybe companies listed in frankfurt and things like that so yeah it's one of the it's one of those things we probably can't control we probably can't do much about it it's it's a known risk and again to some degree that's that's positive but the unknown risk you don't see coming um, and i don't really expect it to be to, to cause massive problems but i'm also mindful that we're not exactly this is not exactly a zero risk uh, strategy come October 31 for, for the UK and Europe. Absolutely. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, coming back home for a second, Foxtel and Netflix have done a deal. The the old guard and the new guard, the the top dog and the, and the would-be, um, you know, uh, Disruptor, or maybe maybe it's already the disruptor given its global global position. But it's the, the news here is Foxtel are now going to put a Netflix button on their set top box remote controls. Effectively, now you can access Netflix through your Foxtel IQ box. You're going to need a Netflix subscription still, so it doesn't change that story. But it basically means that Netflix subscribers have a much easier way to get access to to, to Netflix via Foxtel or vice versa. Foxtel, I assume, hoping that this makes their streaming service, their, their their boxes, their subscriptions more relevant to consumers. It kind of, in the US, some of our listeners will know there's the Roku box, which kind of lets you kind of bring a whole lot of stuff together. It does to some degree what the kind of the eye, what's the Apple Apple TV does? Yeah, the Apple TV, the uh, the Amazon Fire TV. Right, they, they, right. They all so, do effectively the same so thing. So the idea is it's, it's, a, it's a smart TV solution. Foxtel are just basically hoping to bring that smart TV option via their current set-top box. I'm not sure how to think about this. I, I have to say on one level... I said to I said to the team yesterday. On one level, I don't think this is necessarily successful for Foxtel. On the other hand, I don't think they're actually any more successful by not doing it. So it kind of makes I don't see a lot of downside in doing it. Uh, that being said, I don't really see the, uh, the the future for TV watching being a Foxtel box in any way, shape, or form. I, I you know, generously maybe there's a there's there's a there's a, a place for Foxtel streaming. Um, certainly, their KO service. I, I'm a subscriber. It's very very good in my view. Um, I'm a Netflix subscriber as well, by the way. I just can't. Uh, we we got rid of our Foxtel box, and we just you know we just don't need need that box anymore because we've got the kind of you know the internet options. There's going to be a long and slow tail of people who don't want to go streaming and are happy to use that. They've already got a Foxtel box. They don't want to try and think about streaming to their TV, smart TV. It's all too hard. So yes, maybe that makes some sense, and maybe it keeps makes Foxtel more relevant for a little bit longer by by giving people access to Netflix that way rather than having to try and work out how to plug something into their TV to get Netflix that way. So I, I get why, in the short term, it makes sense for both companies. I just I find it a little bit strange that I guess maybe that maybe that they haven't done some sort of deal with Telstra TV and with the Roku box that Telstra's bringing in or something to try and use that as the platform rather than try to drag people back or keep them back in the 90s when the set-top boxes were the only way to watch Foxtel. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting deal as uh, or interesting option as you say. Um, I have mixed views as you as you just noted, and I mostly agree with you. One of the things I'd, I'd say is that as more streaming services essentially come online, yeah. um, you would need some sort of um, you know device basically right, to watch right. them, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I wouldn't expect, for example, all smart TVs to come with apps. They might not be up to date, and the apps on the TVs are anyways kind of not. Not that good, Durable, right? Yeah. So you'd you'd need a a 
a sort of dongle, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's your Foxtel dongle or whether it's a dongle from Apple or whether it's a dongle from Amazon or whoever else or Google, uh, you right. need something. Um, I think as more of these come, I think there's there's a play here, as you said. I mean, for example, KO uh, or any sports streaming, right? Mm-hmm. You, I don't. I think the future would probably include some sort of bundling deals, like maybe Foxtel is going to be selling some bundle which says, okay, <laughs> yeah, right, right. you can buy Foxtel plus Netflix as a bundle and you get a discount. Yeah, okay. Right? And or if you enable people on the Foxtel device to actually sign up to Netflix, maybe Foxtel gets a cut. Yeah, okay. Right. So I think there's, uh, you know, as this balkanization of content is happening, there is this opportunity for, you know, various sort of uh, realignments and mm-hmm. deals to to happen for, you know, basically, you know, uh, deal created bundles. And I think that that seems to be the way it's already happening with um, telcos, for example, many mm. telcos are bundling uh, Netflix or other subscription right, services. Right, right. So, you know, why couldn't you think that, you know, Foxtel is going to bundle something? Yeah. I, look, I think it makes sense. I just, I guess to my mind, the, the big question, I think for me, and, and, and Tosha TV is already using the Roku box. So they're kind of going down that path already themselves or the puck as they call it. Um, I'm just, the Foxtel IQ box, I, I've had one up until I guess 12 months ago, we got rid of it. It's just this big cumbersome weird thing and I kind of it's a kind of crappy user interface and I, I mean I get it like I get if you if that's what your business is you kind of can't afford to divorce it entirely it just strikes me as a little bit strange yeah. that the future Foxtel isn't hey we'll, we'll use the Telstra TV Roku or something different or the, you know similar and kind of make that the platform right to, to give people the access to all of those things I would have thought moving forward the bigger issue of Foxtel isn't trying to get people on Foxtel to use Netflix or maybe Netflix subscribers to somehow pay an extra 100 bucks a month for Foxtel, but to actually kind of be part of that broader streaming service, as you say, the, the, the stands or the Google Plays or the Apple TVs or the whatevers. At some point, you know, you don't, no, people don't want four or five devices. Um, it just strikes me a little bit unusual. And yes, look, as I said, they probably need to do it anyway because what else do they do? But on the same token, it doesn't strike me as a... It doesn't strike me as the winning move. It doesn't strike me as the solution to the problems of of cable TV. No, and I agree. I, I mean, as I have said before, like I think in as as streaming becomes like you know more and more common, and mm. there are all these different players that are basically doing uh, streaming at international scale. The local players are basically going to be squeezed. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean that's the fact. Um, and and you know, uh, and, and especially like in a, in a country like Australia, where we would you know we would be accepting of content that is internationally produced or mm. produced mm. in the UK or produced you know BBC content or American content. Mostly, that's what people watch here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if that's the case, then there's no reason for a local player to actually survive. Right. I mean, um, if this was India, though, you would think that, you know, something else is happening there because you need local content. There's a lot of people that watch, right, right, right. you know, uh, there's a language barrier for a large number of people. Language, culture, style. A language, culture, stuff, which right, is going to be really right. different. So for, for the Western uh, world, which is predominantly English, yep. um, you know, it, it seems like, you know, the bigger forces are going to win. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, basically Foxtel is, is a losing thing. Well, maybe chaos survives because it's sports and specific and they've got certain specific rights in Australia. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if you are at Foxtel, what do you do? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, you exactly. have no choice but exactly. to say, well, exactly. you know, I'm going to include Netflix and I'm going to include Disney and I'm going to hope yeah. that some people are going to stick around because right, I'm giving Disney, you yeah. this. And maybe I'm hoping that some people are not going to go and buy an Amazon Fire TV or a mm-hmm. Google mm-hmm. Uh, whatever or uh, an Apple TV mm-hmm. because I've already got a device. How many, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are only so many HDMI slots on your TV. <laughs> right, yeah, you can only yeah. connect so many devices. Yeah. Um, and, and you got a remote control 
for each one of them. Exactly. And trying to I mean, get which which streaming thing is on which device. And yeah. uh, so I, I think it, it you know every household is going mm. to settle on maybe one or two device right, devices right, right. based on their preferences, based on what ecosystems they use. Mm. Like you know, like I don't have any Foxtel at home. I've just got an Apple TV, right. and I just. Ex- I just expect that whatever I need should be on that Apple TV. Yeah. And if it's not there, that's not going to get my business. Can you get Stan and Netflix on Apple TV? Oh, yeah, Stan is there. Okay, and Netflix as yeah, well? Yeah, Netflix is there. Okay. Yeah, so you, you know, but I'm you can't a- get the Apple content on another device though, right? That's the lock-in for Apple with their own original content, is it? No, no, right? no, no. So their original content would be available on uh, the Apple TV. Right. right. But, so, sorry, but, but the Apple TV original content yeah. isn't available anywhere else though, right? Um, so I think it's going to be available on Roku as well when ah, when it is when it comes. And okay. I mean, uh, Apple the only original I mean the original content that is now available from Apple, mm. which is equivalent yeah, yeah, to TV, yeah. is from Apple Music. Yeah. Um, that is available. The Apple Music app is available on Android. Okay. okay. Right. Uh, so you could have Apple mm. Music on mm. Android. You could have Apple Music on other third-party devices. Mm. They are making Apple TV available on on. So I mean, you know, on, on TVs uh, on Samsungs, for example. So I mean, I expect that some of the you know okay. the ecosystem opens up and you know if you're in the content business you want to make your content accessible to as many people as right. you can right and that well and that's the i think that for me that's the most fascinating thing about the next 10 years is there's there's content and there's platforms and in platforms in my mind there's a software kind of platform and there's the hardware platform and so netflix kind of was a software platform for other people's content and now more and more is original content um, the apple tv in and of itself is both a a device and then over time will be be, be content. And so you've got this weird thing, you know, again, the, the back to the Foxtel IQ box kind of exact conversation is, you know, Foxtel right now is still trying to be both. Um, and, and how the future rolls out, it, it, it as you say, it kind of, it, it's, it, it seems, I'll be wrong almost by definition because so many things will happen in the future that I can't currently imagine. But it strikes me that someone like a Roku who specialize in just aggregating those apps into a really easily usable device is in the box seat for winning the kind of the hardware war and then the, the individual apps kind of don't need to win or lose in, in a winner takes all kind of way they're just going to be available on whatever or as many of the devices as you can kind of find i mean i know the telstra tv box for example doesn't currently have google play movies so if i want to watch that i've got to have a different setup to you know but it's got netflix i think and it's got most of the free-to-air kind of catch-up channels so there's still that thing of like okay well i still need two things i want to use google play plus whatever it is, you know, the, the nine catch-up servers or Netflix or something else, I've still got to have multiple devices to do that. But it just strikes me over time, surely there's a, is, is there not a winner-take-all or winner-take-most hardware device and then all the apps simply become content streams on that device? Yeah, so so on the hardware, I'll just add that most people are not making money on the hardware, except for right, Apple. Right. Apple probably makes money on it because they sell premium hardware. Everybody else doesn't make... So Roku, for example, makes most of this money from ads. Right, okay. Right? So, so their business is ad-driven. and right. they, if, So basically, they want to be the cheap... So, I mean, I, 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 call it, I mean, for Google, for example, Google could have been what Roku is, mm, and b- mm. basically Google dropped the ball there and allowing um, you know Roku to basically become the uh, the cheap... Platform, right, right, right. right? Uh, I mean, the Amazons. I, mean, I think different people have different strategies, right? So, I mean, Netflix's is, is strategy is a lot of content. Apple's strategy is probably curation. Disney's strategy is, uh, you know, I've got my own IP and that's my strategy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, different people have different strategies. They're coming with different things. And, uh, you know, I would expect that, you know, people on average are going to have some combination of these things. Fascinating. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. In the US, saying in the US for a minute, speaking of Netflix, and, and we'll get back to Australia in a minute, but I can't help but... I, so, so during the week, I think it was, just, this was, was it Wednesday morning, Thursday morning? Um, 
the announcement was made that Facebook were going to pay a $5 billion, that's with a B, billion dollar fine in the US, US about $7.1 Australian, $7.1 billion Australian dollars, I should say, and not quite $7.1 Australian dollars, thankfully yet, um, $7.1 billion Australian for privacy breaches. Now, I, I, I do happen to know your view on Facebook and privacy. So I'm happy to happy to hear your thoughts on that. I'm also curious as to how you think the the Department of Justice or whichever regulatory body in the US took this action. How do you come up with a fine for this sort of stuff? I mean, who, who sits there and goes, "Yeah, three's not too much. Eight billion's probably too much. Uh, you know, three three's not enough. How about five? Let's just go with five. It, it's kind of one of those things where you know you speed to get fined four hundred and forty dollars. You go, okay, fine. You know, there there are things that kind of they make some rough sense. I don't know how you go about, you know, do they have a room of people they always pick a number on, you know, how, how does a fine end up being 5 billion rather than 3 or 8 or 22 or 1? I'm just going to feel, there is no easy answer, I'm sure, but it just, it just seems like a really, A, stomp, stupidly large number, but also a completely arbitrary one. Uh, you know, I've come up with an answer. I think this is a <laughs> very good answer. Okay, good. So, so I just looked up uh, on on CapIQ, yep. uh, this, you know, this gold, data pla- platform the gold, gold-plated data platform. Yes, the total cash and short-term investments that Facebook has got yes. is forty-eight point <laughs> six billion dollars. They won't notice the five billion you're missing. So you just do a ten percent of that, and that's really five billion. So you know, it's it's not too small. Ten percent, you know, yeah. it's not too large. It's like it's kind of like a little bit better than a slap on the wrist. And then think about the whichever, and I don't know, it's the Department of Justice, whoever is is doing this. Yeah. Think about the number of champagnes they can open <laughs> at, with that money. Like, I mean, you know, you want to find a number that the other company is going to give you, the company is going to give you, right? right Without right. really putting up a fight. Yeah. And it's going to be so such a large amount for you that you could, you know, run after <laughs> as many companies as you want for the next five years. So I think that's how they decided. Okay, yeah. we need five billion so that we can, you know, run after other culprits um, for the next five years. This is a good amount of money. Yeah. Um, and and they stipulated that um, I don't exactly remember what the wording was, but they stipulated that um, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO uh, and uh, and co-founder, has to. Uh, sign off on things that, you know, uh, every year or something like that, that right, they right. are not in breach. So, I mean, they put a high bar on on company management uh, to uh, not mm, further mm. engage in mm. privacy be- breaches. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, given my views, I just don't know how a company like Facebook can prevent privacy breaches. Right, it's, right. its whole concept is about having no privacy. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I just, uh, yeah, I, like I... And again, I don't have a I don't have a beef with the five billion. I don't really have a view on it in, in particular. But it's just that question of you know what what is that worth? Even even just a, as a concept, right? You've I mean most of the oh so I'll say most I think it's true most of the companies that were involved in the GFC causing the GFC paid fines less than that. And I kind of you know how, how do you value a privacy breach in terms of damage done? It's hard to kind of say well you know you can you look at the amount of money lost by CFD investors for example sold by dodgy investment banks or you can look at something else and say okay well here's what happened here's what it cost here's how we here's how we deal with it. In this case, it's kind of like it's a it's it's a totally pecuniary fine. It's, there's no there's no sense that it's in any way restitution or making up for anything. It's just an arbitrary you know we hope this hurts you a little bit that you won't do it again. Um, that's kind of the that's kind of the problem. I don't really know how to conceptualize whether you know should it be fifty billion or should it be five hundred million. You know the, the 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 sheer size, as you say, maybe it's a maybe it's a question of how much will Facebook pay without complaining too much, and maybe that is the answer. Um, but I do wonder, you know, where do you draw? How do you draw? How, how does any regulator draw a line on what an appropriate fine is? For some, it's obviously a breach of the law. Facebook, I'm sure, have admitted, or if they haven't, maybe they've acknowledged no fault and still paid five billion dollars, which is always one of the funniest um, legal. 
uh, structures there are in the world where you don't you don't acknowledge fault, but you give someone five billion bucks. Um, I just I just don't I don't I don't know how you go about coming up with that amount of money. But maybe it's a question that never gets answered. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, time for mailbag. And our first question comes from Burrow. Burrow says, Morning, fellas. Hope you both enjoyed your recent cultural sojourns. I know I did. You, oh, tangent alert. Doc, how was your how was your break, mate? You were in, in Verona as, uh, as well as other places? Uh, you know, I was, I was in Verona, which is basically halfway between um, Milan and Venice. Lovely. I was there for a few days and then I, I just hopped across the pond uh, to Canada for a few days Very and good. then back. Um, How's Verona? Verona is, is it's good, good I've food. I've never been. Okay. Good food. Uh, small town. Right. Relatively small, so I think like they have two hundred fifty thousand people that live oh, wow. there. There's no traffic. Uh, <laughs> nice. They have great trains, uh, which is which is fantastic. Um, yeah, like that's not you know Verona is a small place. It's not you know mm, Milan mm. is more interesting. Okay. Uh, lots of people on cycle, for example, on on, on Milan. You know, people with, with suits and ties and <laughs> AirPods in their ear. You know, and you know. On their bike, going going to work, and it's a horrible stereotype. Are, are Italian drivers still as bad as they were when I was last in Italy? <laughs> uh, well, you know, we, we didn't actually do that much uh, right, okay. uh, traveling by cars or Ubers and things like that. Um, it was hugely chaotic last time. I was in Rome, and it was just it was, it was an amazing spectacle to watch. Mm. But she's glad enough to drive in that traffic. Well, we we took the, we took the cab in in Milan, and right. and um, that was that was. Okay, there was no okay. incidences, and and I mean in Verona there's no traffic, so people just drive like crazy, right, anyways. Because right. <laughs> so, you can, because you there's can. There's fewer people to hit. <laughs> exactly. So, so. Mate, tell me, did, did any any kind of any, any sense of kind of the economy there or the markets, or did you have any? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure you like me. When you travel, you kind of got half a half an eye on on the holiday, half an eye on the on the uh, you know the, the economy and kind of the investing kind of angle because that's what we tend to live and breathe. Was there any kind of you kind of thought that was interesting? Either, either the strength of the economy or the vibe of the people, or or what was going on in the place? Well, like you know, um, I you know I always ask people how how things are, how's competition, yeah, right. and and it seems like you know many of these cities, um, um, your um, tourists are a big deal. So, right, so tourism and tourism-driven uh, economy is is definitely a big deal. Um, you, you, you know, you could you could look at the infrastructure, and you know, and it seems like you know they don't have that many buildings going on. Okay. Um, so, so maybe you know the economy is not not that strong, um, but you know, like like a city like Milan, for example, has its own buzz. There are people like you know, they, mm. they, it seems like there's a lot of people, and we were kind of near the downtown sort of area, so you could see a lot of people going to work, and you know, it looked looked quite vibrant. It looked actually like Sydney, and there was a lot of vib- vibrancy in the in the city. Okay, so. Uh, and that, and then the other things that you do, you notice a lot of, you know, the, the, you know, the global brands that you, you know, you find the Coca Colas that are there, and you, you, you know, find the apples and the, the AirPods. Right, right. Um, I mean, you know, my observation is that the, the, the AirPods are the sleeper hit that nobody, <laughs> talk, nobody talks about because you see them just pretty much everywhere. Right, right. Um, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, again, nothing specific. Um, they'd observe. I, I was in Canada, and I'll, mm. I'll just note this. And I, I went to Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons is oh, basically yeah. the um, uh, maybe the Gloria Jeans of uh, of of Canada, but oh, the Starbucks. Bit, oh, you can call it the Starbucks of Canada. But it's it's got a special place for Canadians because right. uh, you know that's one of the things that you do if you're in Canada is you go 
to Tim Hortons and have coffee. And the coffee is really cheap. It's okay. like a dollar thirty cents or something like that. Okay. Good uh, coffee or terrible coffee? Oh, it's filter coffee. That's, okay, you know, right, and yeah. you can have a donut for a dollar and twenty. Right. Uh, so it's pretty cheap. One of the things that I noticed is they've got this alternative meat thing now. Um, so oh, they're man, selling alternative you too. meat. Well, I was. What was impressive to me is that alternative meat, like uh, Beyond Burgers, yeah. uh, have invaded into something like Tim Hortons. Wow! Right, that's Tim Hortons is like a really an everyday thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. So if you if you're invading an everyday thing, you know, I, I can see why there's so much exuberance there. And I, right, you know, I'm not right. an investor in it, um, <laughs> but I, I just I just thought that you know that's a very interesting trend that you have. Um, you know, beyond burgers and beyond sausages. Uh, right. You know, so the morning. And these meals, are the, these are the fake meat products. These are the fake meat products. The meat that is that's not really a meat. Yeah, uh, it tastes <laughs> like a meat, looks like a meat. Um, and I asked the people serving, and you know, for a small sample size from two stores. Mm. So take, and there's, there's there is interest in these products, and people wow, okay. are um, asking about it, and people are having it. And I did have one. Oh, did uh, you? I uh, I always try. I'm always burger or sausage. Oh uh, no! So this was a morning sausage thing. Okay. So a, you know, so instead of having like something like a Mac muffin yeah, yeah. for example you can have uh the same version with the beyond burger okay and how was it it was great actually it tastes good it, you know. are you a convert well i don't know like i mean I'm, i like <laughs> I, I like meat but i mean i occasionally like i go to grilled and i would have impossible uh, okay. not, but the beyond burgers at grilled and, and it tastes good so i i, I wouldn't say i'm a con- convert but i can see mm. why people like it interesting Interesting. I certainly will uh, shout out to our colleague Andrew Leggett, who was uh, not, not only an investor but also a, a what do we call it, a rabid a rabid fan. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Well, he you know he invested <laughs> he invested pretty early. He He's happy with his gains. He did. He's done well. It's it's one of those stocks that keeps going up. Uh, right. And I'm not making a recommendation that you buy it because it keeps going up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know it's one of those things that has gone up. I mean you know and I haven't looked at the financials or anything. But mm. it it is just interesting how they have uh, found their way into these different right. restaurant yeah, chains, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And that, that is an interesting way to interesting. Uh, build a brand and build build a mm, reputation. Mm, mm. There you go. I was uh, I had a, a good time in the outback of New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. Uh, had a good couple of weeks off. It was a, a fun time. We went away with the family, went to uh, put the camp trail on the back of the car and headed up into the outback. Uh, mate, it is bloody dry out there, can I tell you, in most of the most of northwestern New South Wales and, and southwestern Queensland. It is just dry as dry. The poor bastards on the farms out there, the stations out there are just doing it really, really, really tough. Um, some of the stations have literally are down to breeding stock only in terms of cattle stock. Um, same with the sheep the sheep flocks. It's just a really, really tough place to be. The the, the Darling River is, is but a trickle, um, which is just really sad to see. So they're doing it tough. They're in their seventh year in some places of drought. Um, so yeah, re- really tough. Lovely, wonderful people, of course, and a, and a great experience. The Big Red Bash was was fun, as I said. I'm a world record holder, which is kind of fun. So I'm in the oil play live, which was a, which is a highlight as well. Um, and it did a couple of kind of the the, um, the the kind of bucket list destinations or experiences, right? So we drove down the Birdsville track and had a, a feral mixed grill. Speaking of, speaking of uh, none of that was meatless. Um, the feral mixed grill is emu, kangaroo, and what's the other one? Uh, emu, kangaroo, camel, and camel. It is well done. Um, so that was. <laughs> That was kind of an experience. So yeah, a little bit less, a little bit less salubrious than Verona, um, but fun in, in its own way, and certainly had a, had, a, had a pretty good time. That's certainly not meatless. It, it was not. Meatless. <laughs> this is the this is the antithesis of being they, meatless. They do not do fake meat in the outback, mate. Just just quietly, I think I'd be thrown out of the. Out I, of the I restaurant. was impressed with that photograph that actually you posted on. <laughs> I, I believe it was it was on, on Twitter. I said, look, you know, I'd like to actually have that meal. <laughs> it was re- so the Ferromix grill was really fascinating. That one was a. 
The made one that was sausage, one was something else. Anyway, and it was just, it was a really interesting, it was nice to have all three at the same time because you got to sense the different flavors and tastes and textures. It was it was pretty cool. Um, kangaroo was probably the most steak-like, most beef-like. Um, the other two were more kind of gamey, which was interesting, but but dark meat. So yeah, look, and it's it's a famous, the Prairie Hotel at Parachilna. Shout out to the guys there. They almost certainly won't be listening, um, but if they happen to be, um, thank you for your hospitality. It was just it was just a really kind of one of those bucket list experiences to have, which was which was kind of fun. So, but back in the saddle and, and ready and rearing, as we said, man, that was a massive tangent, wasn't it? Poor that Burrow. Was, was, you know, poor, and, and you know, got to, you know, thank you, Burrow, for asking that question because now you're you know everything, now. or maybe you're sorry that you asked. Now that you know everything about Scott's camel eating, there you, you go. Know? Yeah, all about the camel. Try all the feral mixed grill, the FMG at the Prairie Hotel in Parachon. Let me know how you go. Um, and speaking of which, if you do want to see some of those photos, not that it's about me, um, but we, I threw some photos up on Twitter. TMF Scott P is my handle, as you probably know if you've listened to this more than a few times. Um, you can jump in there and have a look at the some of the photos just for, for fun if you want to. Um, some spectacular colours, mate. The Sunsets and sunrise in the bush are just phenomenal. They are to die for. Probably the best was um, was at the Dig Tree, the Birkenwells Dig Tree, just uh, just near an Aminka. Uh, just the most phenomenal, phenomenal sunrises and sunsets you've ever seen. The whole horizon changes colour right around to 360 degrees. It is just a beautiful experience. Anyway, getting back to Burrow's question. Sorry, Burrow. Um, he says, I have a question about managing investments. If you have two portfolios, e.g. super and non-super, would you consider them separately or together? For the purposes of asset allocation and relative weighting of holdings, thank you in advance, Burrow. This is a really, really good question, mate. It's one we haven't really tackled before. So when I got it through, I was like, "Hey, great question. I'm looking forward to answering that." And again, thankfully, I get to throw it to you first, so um, you can do all the hard work, and I'll just agree with you and sound smart. So, mate, what do you think? If you've got if you've got two separate portfolios, do you think about it as one portfolio when it comes to asset allocation and weightings? Do you think about it as two? Do you kind of add that add the, if you hold Netflix in both, do you kind of consider it one position worth? You know, a larger percentage, or do you kind of treat them separately? How how would you if how do you or how would you think about the difference there? You know, you should we should have a fine for asking hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, five, five billion dollars. Five billion dollars. Five billion dollars. <laughs> so, we'll send you the bank account details. Borrow, we'll send you. We'll soon be sending an invoice. <laughs> so, it's a good one, though, right? It's a great question, and and it's a tough one. Yeah. Um, so, I, again. None of this. I'll always preface this by saying that none of this is personal advice. Uh, I will answer this from what, from the point of view of what I do. Um, so we have a a super fund that, or a self managed super fund, that actually is invested mostly in illiquid assets. Okay. Okay. Um, and and the reason behind that is the super fund allows you know basically doesn't allow you to take money out of it until you're like you know 60 mm-hmm. or 65 mm-hmm. or whatever um, it has a longer time frame so you can actually in the sense of you know when we we intend to tap it so a lot of this depends on when you intend to tap mm-hmm. a certain fund right the super fund has a natural point where it's going to be tapped and therefore investing in assets that you know can be a little bit illiquid but you know you can hopefully um, unwind them at a certain point mm-hmm. so you know they have like you know proper investments and things like that or there's a property investment in it so that's as an example um in interesting and then like in the portfolios it depends on again what your portfolio is is doing so if you have a portfolio so the context matters if, you, if your portfolio is for example a portfolio that you want um to maybe uh, bridge a certain point before you you know are able to tap your uh, your super, mm. then that has a different purpose. If it's that if it's something that you want to have that you want to leave for people, or you're going to be using alongside your um, your uh, uh, 
uh, superannuation, then again, it has a different purpose. Mm. Um, I almost treat the the super fund completely separate from um, my uh, my investment account. Okay, right. It's, it's a, you know I do not look at the again as I said that it does not have stock investments there, um, so it it doesn't matter. Uh, we do have two different accounts in which I invest, mm. and even there too, I, I have I have different objectives. So on one one account, I'm I'm I. Well, on both accounts, I'm, I'm, I have a very growth focused on it, but I do not. Um, I guess I do not um, look at them as an aggregate. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of thinking about it, you could look at them as an aggregate and say, okay, my aggregate position is this. Mm-hmm. That's one way of doing it. But uh, but I sort of have a different investment philosophy behind um, one of the accounts, you know, that's like a trust account and that, you know, the idea behind the trust account is to essentially that, you know, trust lives lives beyond people Um, and and therefore, you know, I try to invest that taking a really, really, really long time horizon and I'm I'm happy to be, for things to be more volatile there. Uh, My own personal account, I still take a long horizon, but, you know, uh, maybe I'm I'm Mm. less... um, um, I, I'm willing to uh, be less tolerant versus the other accounts. So, I mean, okay. you know, so that's that's what I do. Uh, you you could you could do pretty much if you have different accounts for whatever mm-hmm. reason. You could pretty much consider them to the same, and then you could you could um, you could consider them um, your allocations to be one, and mm-hmm. that's that's definitely a possibility as well. Why the why the lower tolerance for for volatility or for losses in the personal account, mate? Is it just because you think you can make more money elsewhere, and you kind of you'd rather go and kind of chase the better gains? How, how do you think about those so, two? So, so in my in my one in my personal account, I also use derivatives. I use the options which right, you, right. which you hate with passion. <laughs> um, um, so I, I don't use, mind you using them. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't allow them. <laughs> it was up yeah, to me, which is yeah, kind of the same thing, but kind yeah, of different. Kind of, kind of, yeah. So I use I use our, our options there. Um, <laughs> On on the on the trust account, I rarely mm. use them. Right. Okay. Uh, but you know, I, I just invest there, and I just you know th- that account has I would say less trading. Okay. If if you Makes if sense. you will, yeah, right, it has right. less, the trust account has less trading. It, it's less, less touched. Active. Right. Less, well, it's you know if there's money there, then you invest it, and you know I'm just not trying to. In, mm-hmm. in the other account, uh, I I do a little bit of my my trading itch, is, <laughs> and it's most again I don't trade in and out of the stocks. What yeah, I do yeah. is I basically you know I might write puts or I might Your buy some call. It, it's my my derivative itch is is fulfilled there. Nice. Uh, and. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's just it's just a different like strategy that yeah. I have. Yeah. You, as I said, you could consider both of those accounts to be one account, and yeah, then you right. could you could think about allocations. I mean, that's one way of thinking. About it. I've never right. really paid that much attention in terms of um, mm. uh, allocation. Again, I'm not a very heavily concentrated type of investor. Like you know, my largest position, if you combine two portfolios, would be like seven eight percent. Okay, so, like, so I'm not like. It fifteen percent concentration yeah, right. kind of guy. Um, so, and I, you know, I'm not the person who invests in like only. I'm going to only invest in fifteen positions because, again, because of my own investment, because mm-hmm. of my investment philosophy being that you know I take these investments in more risky growth type mm-hmm. of companies. Um, I realize that they're going to, you know, it's like what we do in extreme opportunities. There's a higher strike rate right. yeah, yeah. Uh, of failure. <laughs> That's a strike rate, of, <laughs> strike rate. Strike rate, not of success, but of failure. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and because I realize that you know I can fail. I'm okay to yeah, okay. to make Makes more bets. Yeah, nice one. Nice yeah. one. That's, that's my answer. Mate, I've, got, I've got little to add other than just a slightly different perspective just for the sake of diversity and, and giving some different views. I um, 
Excuse me. I would, and I think your example of, say, property, for example, in one in one section is a whole different story, and that's that's a really important distinction for people. And I think how you invest and where you invest, there's, there's tax considerations, there's lock up considerations, as you mentioned, Doc. The, the chance of you can't physically get money out super to sixty five. And for me personally, um, in terms of structure, I've got a healthy balance of both. I, I probably it's probably roughly fifty fifty. I think inside and outside super. And for me, that's largely a case of you know what if I if I'm fortunate enough and clever enough and save hard enough to retire at fifty five rather than sixty five, for example, or whatever the whatever the year might be. I don't want to have to then wait 10 years stacking shelves at Coles before I can get to my, my superannuation balance. So I want to have a bit of both. Um, you know, if, if I knew I was going to work right through, then it would make no sense to have a separate account, frankly, because the tax benefits of super are way more um, significant than otherwise. I just, I just like to have the flexibility. So in terms of how I fund both of those accounts, that's, that's one way to think about it. Um, the other one is probably, in terms of the way you think about allocations, I tend to... I tend to agree with you, Doc. It's, it's funny about, and I think that's a smart approach, frankly. Super should be money that is a much lower potential for loss in my mind. And that is simply because, you know what, you, you, don't, want to, you don't want to be trading off a higher potential gain and a higher potential loss hoping you're right when it comes to your retirement. You know, it's not, there's no point being unlucky and having no money left in your super when you get 65 because you've gone too far ahead of the curve. You took some chances that, frankly, even if they were in your favor, they just didn't work out. And all of a sudden, you're sitting on, on meaningful losses or at least much, much less money than you otherwise could have had. So this is one of those one. I think it's, it's a little bit tortoise and hare for me. You know, the superannuation should be the tortoise. It's the slow and steady wins the race job. It's just relatively slow, steady accumulation, absolutely with shares in my view. I think that's a, a smart way to do it, a property as you, as you do, mate. But just but conceptually, I don't think you should be necessarily being super conservative. I just think you don't want to be taking unreasonable um, chances with super because it's just simply you don't get a chance to start again. You know, this is this is money that you get from from being paid or you put aside yourself that is locked up. You only get one go at it. Um, you can't start again at 65 and start rebuilding your super balance. So for my mind, that's one that probably should be invested a little more conservatively just to make sure you don't end up in the, on the bread line in retirement because frankly, no one wants that. And then the, the personal account, I'm not, I don't even invest particularly differently in the personal account, but it's more just a, a kind of a frame of reference. If I'm going to take uh, the, the higher risk investments are probably in my personal account, the lower risk investments in super, um, just because, and again, these are all relative numbers. Like I'm not in, I don't have, bonds i don't have a meaningful amount of strategic cash i've got some cash from time to time in my account just because of proceeds of sales i haven't reinvested or whatever it is but um but ideally you know the strategic direction is still to be in shares across the board i just to some degree think you want to make sure you don't have the risk of not having enough when you retire and so being a little more conservative there accepting a lower return for a higher probability of that return i think it's a smart thing to do with your super balance i have nothing to add Beautiful. Mate, quick one from uh, Tardis3 on Twitter. He says, hey guys, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you. I'd like to win the ASX share market game starting in a few weeks. Can you give me some tips to give me the edge? And any stock suggestions? So for those who don't know, the ASX share market game is, I think, is it over four weeks still or is it longer these days? In any case, a very short-term uh, trading game the ASX likes to provide to, in theory, help people uh, get more invested in shares to give them some experience and exposure um, to, for people to put, pit, their, pit their skills against others in their cohort. Uh, I have some thoughts about the ASX share market game, but before I share them, Doc, your thoughts as to suggestions for TARDIS as to um, some tips to give him the edge in the game or her and any stock suggestions. So it should be called the SX trading game. Yeah, it should, shouldn't it? 
Um, you still not understand for, for, for the four four week. Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, the problem with, with giving any any suggestions for the four week game is that we are coming into earnings season. And <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, right? The terrible time to try it's and win. It's like that game. the terrible time yeah, to actually yeah. start that game, and because yeah. you know things can go up, things can go down <laughs> based on what and those will. reports say. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I mean, there, there are a bunch of interesting companies um, on the ASX, you know, on uh, without giving too much, like, you know, mm-hmm. on um, a couple of companies we have talked about lots, for example, Elmo um, is, is a, again, an HR software company, mm-hmm. which I really like. We have wrecked it, um, you know, a few times, a couple nice. of times uh, in, in our service that that's done really well. Um, so I like, I really like that. Um, you know, you could pick you could pick growthy stocks like that, or you could pick you know um, more stalwarty. You can pick something like, um, uh, like mm. an A two milk, for example, which is uh, you know which which sells basically A two uh, A two protein branded milk. Um, lots of different options. You know, I, I think again, if you're I don't know how many stocks you can pick there, but you know if you if you're uh, if you've got a short time period, mm. um, it, it's it's still luck of the draw. Maybe if you pick some growthy stocks, you come out ahead. Um, I, I don't know, but yeah, I'd mm. suggest like you know those two are exa- you know, good examples. For example, of stocks that you could use. Awesome, I like that. It's um yeah. Look, you're right about the training game, Doc, and and the way they structure this thing. I think you pick normally ten stocks and. I think I'm not sure if you have weightings on this one. I, I'm not. I'm not particularly close to the game, as you say. I, I actually, I have, I have mixed feelings for the share market. I think anything that interests people in the share market is probably a net positive. Mm. Frankly, over any any short period of time, it's a, you might as well you might as well you know go to the go to the casino and play some roulette. Mm. Um, the guy who wins on on 38 red or 38 black is it red or black? I don't know. The guy who wins on 38 um, and thinks he's a genius and wins, goes home with a fortune feels like he's he's either smart or lucky. The guy who's on you know double zero and takes nothing home. All of a sudden, feels like he's you know the, the worst gambler in the world. That's kind of the, the story with the share market game. Quite frankly, because there's no money at risk, the best way to win this one is to take some really really outlandish bets or, or guesses on some really um, small stuff that could move meaningfully one way or the other. And if you're unlucky, it's going to move down, and you'll just absolutely bomb in the game. If you're lucky, it'll go up because you know small stocks can from time to time, and particularly mining stocks and stuff that gets a little bit of wind or something else going on, and you actually can do quite well. So. I will say for what it's worth, I don't like the game as a, a proxy for learning to invest. Um, and if you're going to win, the, the biggest tip, honestly, as I said, is go with the small stuff that's volatile and hope like hell that it goes in your direction. Um, that's not that's not a that's not a smart um, maximizing your chances of you know. Or mac- you're not looking to you're not looking, looking to minimize loss in this game because there is nothing to lose. Um, you're only looking to maximize your upside. And if there's a asymmetric bet, which is hey, heads you win, tails you don't lose then you might as well play heads. And, if, and playing heads really means going for the vol- super volatile stuff that maybe, if you're lucky, goes in the right direction, you end up winning the game. But um, please, Tardis, well, means good luck. We wish you luck. Um, don't see it as a substitute for investing or even learning to invest. It's a terrible, terrible way to try and learn to invest. The worst thing that can happen to people, quite frankly, is they win this game or do really well, think they're geniuses, and then go and put 10 or 20 or 30 grand into stocks, try and do the same thing again because uh, they're just lucky to lose it as to, to make money next time. Mate, last one for today... This is a. I'm. 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 I'm always going to ask this question, mate, because we're getting into some marital politics, and frankly, I don't want to be caught between a bloke and his wife, or, or a lady mm-hmm. and a husband. Um, that that's frankly a no win, no win solution here. But in the in the interest of of honest discourse and, and education, we will gingerly and very carefully try and walk a fine line between uh, solving a marital problem and causing more grief, mate. It was from Wait Out Seven on Twitter. Hi guys, great show. Can you help settle an ongoing investment discussion between my wife and I? 
Dollar cost averaging versus waiting and buying when there was a dip in the market. Is there a place for both? Does either option suit a different type of shares like ETFs? Now, mate, I don't know which side Wait Out 7 is on and which side his wife is on. I desperately hope I'm on her side because, frankly, she's probably going to be right. And I don't want to be the bloke who, uh, who tells her she's wrong. That's not going to go well for anybody, particularly if I'm wrong about it. But all that being said, mate, dollar cost averaging or waiting and buying when there's a dip in the market? And is there a place for both? What say you? Well, this is a good question. Isn't I it? mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good it's great question. discussion too. It's a good, great discussion. It's a good, it's a good debate to have. So number number one, if you have, you should have some money on the side uh, available to you uh, that you can use in the next say couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that money, I'd, for example, I wouldn't put in the market. Number one, right. So this, and this is not money to invest. This is if you need money to pay bills to cover any rainy day cost your car gets you know smashed up something else happens you any need, money or, you need, or you lose your job right any money you need yeah right so rainy day funds rainy day funds out of the market out of the market Perfect. so that's number one number two um, if you take if you're taking a long term view mm-hmm. market basically goes up over the long term market goes up let's say what you know two years out of three Give or take. so the, so if, if that's if that's the case then uh, putting the putting the funds in the market when they're available uh, is the right thing to do. Right. Statistically, the mathematically, the market goes up. So the longer you wait, mathematically, statistically, the You're worse losing. you are. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, now, the, what I'd like to tell people is that there's there's one, there's a rational thing that's correct. Yeah. There's, the ra- <laughs> there's, there's a rational on paper yeah, yeah. Uh, thing that is uh, the sound thing, the right thing to do. Yeah. But there's also something called mental peace, right? And your ability to tolerate volatility—the old sleep at night test, right? The sleep at night test. You know how are you going to react to different things, right? Yeah. And if if the thing is that you find it better for your mind and your and your mm-hmm. uh, mental sanity that when the market is down, you're able to put a bunch of chunk of yeah. money to work. If yep. that makes you happy and that's what keeps you going, investing yep. for the long term, yep. then you should have some money on the side to to do exactly that. Because that just, you know, mental happiness mm-hmm. is 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 not, actually it's not rational. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's very irrational yep. in many yep. ways, yep. right? Um, so, so I think that's, that's the thing. So I, I think there's no right answer in the sense that you, you need to decide what type of investor you are. Uh, what works for you? Mm-hmm. So uh, I can again, I can say what I do. So like you know, I we, like you know, like many people, many Australians, we have an offset account. An offset account means basically means that you know there's some money sitting in the offset account. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to invest regularly, and and by regularly I don't mean like it's not, not like you know, regularly doesn't necessarily mean every month, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it could mean every quarter. Um, that's pretty. That's to me, every quarter is even dollar cost averaging. If you're, if you're investing every quarter, that's dollar cost averaging. If yeah. you invest every month, that's also dollar cost averaging. They're just different forms right, right, of right. dollar cost averaging. But I do have some funds which I really think that I'm willing to pull down from my offset account. Again, you can make the logic that in offset accounts are paying so less these days given the rates have gone right, down. Right, right. I mean, any money that's basically sitting there is basically losing. Yeah, right? that's the hard part. The it's lower the rates go, <laughs> yeah. the less sensible it is. To put money there. Purely rationally, at least, yeah. as you say, different to what actually gives you the most emotional benefit. But yeah. purely rationally, the lower rates are, the less justification there is having money in an offset. Account. Yeah, you're better off having that money invested in the market or in some other right, higher right. higher earning uh, asset. I mean, most people at the moment should be paying no more than about well three point five three point seven percent on their on their mortgage. Right, I've seen three percent being advertised now. Right, and it's not impossible that you would make less than that in the market. Certainly, some years you'll lose ten percent. So yeah. we're talking about averages here, and that's the problem. But yeah, as you say, it's it's remarkably unlikely. 
that over any extended period of time, you will make less than that on the market and probably double-ish at least yeah, like you're over, probably, over yeah, sort of you're, many four period of time. Yeah, you're probably going to make like, you know, even if you just invest in ETFs, you're right, probably right. going to make 8% of the long term. Right. Right, you know, and, um, you know, that's less than the more the market has delivered over the long term. So, that, I mean, that's that. Um, so, personally, what I do is I, I try to invest, you know, uh, when I have a, I, if I have a good idea, that mm-hmm. I found, or a good company at, or a company that I like at a good price, I would buy if I have funds available. Otherwise, you know, uh, if I've got enough funds beyond what I would like to have in my offset account, mm-hmm. then I would put that to work, um, you know, periodically. You know, that's that's dollar cost averaging. You really, right, right, and right. basically dollar cost averaging in the sense, that, and everybody with dollar cost averaging in the sense, if you have wages coming in, then you know you have your spending, and then you have some savings. So yep. it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense to invest smaller amounts. Um, on a monthly basis because mm-hmm. you know then you land up paying a lot even in transaction costs and I hate paying transaction costs again <laughs> you could also make the, the argument that you know that doesn't matter if you're making more over the long term and yeah. so on so yeah. it's a lot, lot of this is again psychological um, but yeah I, I find it actually good to have some money available mm-hmm. you know when the market's down I feel like okay I can do something <laughs> you know this is, you know, it's just yeah. the urge like hey I'm doing something I'm getting yeah. ahead I'm making the most out of this opportunity uh, but the reality is of course that you know over the long term just investing I think makes sense so that's you know th- those are the two answers, uh, and there's no. I would you're, say you're sitting on the fence, aren't you? There's just no correct answer. And when in doubt, uh, here's the thing: if your strategy makes your wife happy, that's the best strategy. <laughs> so, I, I hardly endorse that approach. So, so that, that's why you know if if, if my wife sees that uh, you know I am smiling and I'm happy, she knows if I'm smiling then my, the account is up. If I'm not smiling, the account is down. So uh, yeah. So you know. So you know, if there's nice a fight, summary. the spouse is right. A nice summary. I'm gonna I'm gonna largely agree with you, mate. I, I I'd like to have a different view just for the sake of difference, but I don't really have one. I think, look, my, my thoughts are exactly to your point that you need to do what's right for you. You need, to, you need to embrace the strategy that is going to mean you're not going to run away and panic at the wrong time. And for some people, that means dollar cost averaging. Here's the thing about dollar cost averaging. I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's probably the best approach for most people because it saves the will we, won't we decision. Because I've got to say, here's the other thing, right? Let's say you've got, let's pick a big number, $100,000 in, in, the, in the account. You're waiting for the right time to buy. Shares fall 5%. You go, oh, I haven't fallen far enough yet. They fall another 5%. They're down 10 Oh, I haven't fallen far enough yet. Then they're down 15 You're like, oh, maybe they're going to fall more. Then they're down 20%. You think, I'm not going to buy now. The shares are down. I'll wait till they start going back up again. Then I'll start buying. So they go back up to minus 15. You say, oh, just a bit longer, just a bit longer. Minus 5 is 10. They think, oh, maybe I will. Then it's minus 5. You think, oh, I missed the boat. I'll wait till next time. And so some, sometimes the, the biggest issue is, is simply not. You know, there's a there's a huge amount of in the in the literature about the uh, idea of pre-commitment. So, you know, humans are crazy emotional characters, as Stocks already mentioned. I completely agree, and not in a not in a judgmental way. Just that's we just are like we're not our evolutionary paths haven't 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 um, led us to a position where we're actually good investors. It, investing is the antithesis of everything evolution has told us, and so the the reality is that you've either got to be able to separate that in your mind. Or to create some pre-commitment devices like, for example, I'll invest money every month or I'll do whatever. Even if it's, you know, whatever whatever strategy keeps you investing and invested, so in other words, keeps you going, make sure that money gets put to work and then you don't freak out and take it out at some other point, that's a great place to be. If you're down, if the market's down 40% and you can feel okay because you've got another, you know, 50 grand in the back pocket to put into the market at that point, that solves the wounds, that's great. On the other hand, if you're someone who dollar cost average, I don't care what the market's doing. It's up 10%, it's down 10%, I'm going to just keep buying with my X dollars a month or a quarter or a half or whatever. Then again, if that works for you, then then go and do that. So I will completely agree with Doc. I think absolutely whatever works for you, just be careful with the 
um, with either strategy, but particularly with the idea of holding some money aside to put to work, the the mental fortitude required to actually put that money to work when everyone else is, you know, the old blood in the streets, as John Templeton said. Um, most people can't do that. They think they can, they think they'll be able to. Most people, by definition, can't. And we know so many anecdotal stories of people who weren't investing in 2004 and 2005. In 2006 and seven, finally went, okay, fine, the market's passing away. I've got to start investing. So they did. 2007, the market peaked. 2008, it crashed. Or 2009, it crashed. They sold everything in 2009, realizing they made a stupid mistake. Investing in shares thing was terrible, terrible idea. Never doing that again. They crystallized the loss. And of course, now the market's back to an all-time high. And they're now thinking, maybe I should start investing again. And so, you know, just, just being mindful of can you really look at yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I will pull the trigger when shares are really cheap and worth holding? Um, then maybe the answer is yes. The other thing I would, and this is a David Gardner quote that he says tongue-in-cheek is, only dips buy on dips. Uh, and his point there is just that, you know, if you are waiting for a 5% fall after a 10% rise, then you've cost yourself 5% in doing it, right? If you if you start from, say, the shares go up 5%, then 10%, then they fall back a little bit, you go and buy, you'll be much better to buy now rather than waiting for the fall. So I, unless you can time the market, most people can't. The rational answer in my mind to Doc's point about market goes up more than down, it goes up two years out of three, you're much better off on average if you're investing regularly just to put the money in the market and let it go um, and acknowledge the volatility. If you can do that, I think that's probably the best situation for most people. Uh, but as, as Doc says, work out who you are as a person and frankly, for both of you as a couple, work out what's going to work best for you. Maybe a bit of both, frankly, is, is good. Maybe you put half a dollar cost averaging account and you're half for the, not the rainy day, so the stormy day, probably when, when things are tough. If that works better for you, then by all means, go for it. Um, that might well be a solution that makes you both a little bit happy and that's probably a, a decent option. Otherwise, choose the strategy that works best for you. Any more, Doc? Nothing. That's, that's, you basically repeated what I said. Well, I like to try and, yeah, when you're right, you're right. So, so if I'm right, every time I'm right, I should just, uh, I'm going to ask, <laughs> I'm gonna ask for a raise. Oh, that, that's that's going to be a new thing. I'm going to disagree a lot more. Okay. <laughs> All right, Phil, that does wrap us up for our first post-holiday podcast. We hope we've uh, made the wait worth it. We did have some over the break, of course, and hopefully they were enjoyable and worth listening to. As always, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or via email. On Twitter, I'm at TMFScottP. Anirban is at Anirban Mahanti. You can hit us up at The Motley Fool AU. That's all on Twitter. We're on The Motley Fool AU on Facebook and info at fool.com.au. If you want to hit us up by email, if that's your preferred method of communication, the member services team will make sure we get those emails as well. And please do get in touch. Let us know what you're thinking, feeling, hearing, what you'd like us to talk about. Because frankly, if you're not enjoying it, then we're talking to ourselves. If you are enjoying it, then we're adding some value to your lives and helping you be a little bit smarter, a little bit richer, and hopefully a little bit happier along the way. Well, that wraps us up, mate. Before we go, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And as always, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating, leave us some stars, give us some thoughts. It helps other people find it. And frankly, we're narcissistic and ego-driven people and who doesn't like reading nice things about themselves? All right. And you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. I sent out one yesterday about my trip, which might have been self-indulgent, but there were some cool photos there. So you can, you can choose. I won't do that again anytime soon. So back to investing content from here on. Uh, you can get that by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.